0: This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.
1: We're told in 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed
0: Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. You're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron. Pastor Jeff is going to be looking at the meaning within Revelation chapter 13 and the beast of the sea. Now, Pastor Jeff says these are times that the wheat becomes separated from the chaff, and it's easy to be a good Christ follower when nothing is on the line. You and I might say the right things, sing the right songs, but when trouble comes, the reality of who we truly are emerges. Let's be thinking about this as we get ready to dive into Revelation chapter 13 today and how we can apply it to our lives today. Let's jump into the message.
1: I'm in Revelation chapter 13 and we start a new series this weekend and as I was putting this together, I thought of a friend of mine. I played basketball with him in high school and college and he's one of these players. He was an all-American in practice. I love telling this story because he's dunking on everybody, no-look passes, uh, steals and offensive rebounds and putbacks. In practice, this guy was a thing of beauty to watch. Poise and grace. The problem was that when the game time came around, sheer panic, timidity, fear, missed layups, foolish turnovers. He was constantly fumbling the ball and he had that look in his eyes that every athlete knows and recognizes. It was the look that says, do not under any circumstances pass me the ball. Every person deals with pressure differently. Some panic and become paralyzed with the thought of failure. And that's why a lot of great athletes never make it. Uh, they hit a ceiling that has to do with what's between their ears, not necessarily their talent or ability. But there are others who tend to thrive under pressure. They're true athletes. And the true athlete comes out in them the greater the stakes. And they have this look on their face that says, give me the ball. And the only time in my basketball career that I talked back to my coach was my senior year of college during a close game that was deciding the conference championship. And coach called timeout. We were down one point, we had time for one play. It was a must-make situation. And he drew a play as a decoy. He said, Jeff, they're gonna be thinking that we're gonna set up a play for you. Instead, we're gonna set it up for this guy. So he drew a decoy play. And after the huddle broke, I stayed behind and I said, coach, look at that guy. And it's the guy that he had drawn up the play for. Now I had nothing against my friend at all. I could just tell by the look in his eyes, panic, fear. So when the huddle broke, I said, coach, look at him. He's terrified. Just give me the ball. Now, there are times that the wheat will be separated from the chaff because it's easy to be a Christ follower when nothing is on the line. I mean, you can say the right things, you can sing the right songs, and then trouble comes suddenly, and the reality of your authenticity, your endurance, your faithfulness, all of that will come to the surface. In fact, Jesus taught that in Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the seed and the sower. He said, the seed, which represents the gospel, falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only for a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So even Jesus told us that sometimes it's hard to distinguish between the authentic Christ follower and the one that just simply doesn't understand what is required. So even though I know this, and I I, as a pastor am fully aware of Jesus' words, for some strange reason, I continue to be surprised over the course of my life. There are two people that I've mentioned previously that have had a great impact on my life. And it, quite frankly, is a negative one. I'm reminded of a young lady that was raised, reared in a devout Christian home. She had been taught the scriptures. She knows fully well who Jesus is. She believes in Christ. She made a poor choice in a marriage and that poor choice led to a domino effect. The marriage ended, there was the estrangement of her family, her children. And I saw her walk away from Christ and that was devastating, at least for a season. I know another young man who's older, actually older than me now, who was a pastor like myself. Married a fine young Christian woman, beautiful, godly woman, raised her children well And then the family encountered sickness, and this man who'd been in ministry for all of his life suddenly just walked away, as if the thing that he had preached all of his life, he now did not believe. But they're not alone, because during the events of the last two years, which I will call game time, people I thought that were incredibly committed, panicked, folded, many of whom walked away. People that I thought understood the gospel and the nature of the working doings of God in the midst of great difficulty, began to hide away and leave the church and ask, where's God in all this? As if somehow, as Christ followers, we're never supposed to encounter difficulty or suffering. And yet, we're told in 1 Peter 4, a passage with which most of us are familiar, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. In other words, there's a sense in which the pain and suffering of our day and our time sets God up for even greater glory as we notice the distinction between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. So we're told, don't be surprised. If Jesus suffered, you also will suffer. There have been others that have responded as if there's only one kingdom in operation and it's the kingdom of man. As if the purpose of the church is to protect and preserve the kingdoms of this earth. I received a text from one person who said, we're losing our country and the church is not doing enough, therefore I give up on church. Well, I would hope that you'd give up on your country if it's a spiritual impact. Not that you'd give up on wanting your country to do well or that God would bless our nation. But the role of the church, surely you know, is not to try to preserve any kingdom of man, but to draw people into the kingdom of God. As we see in Revelation, every kingdom of man will eventually fall. Only the kingdom of God lasts forever. And there have been others who've realized that not attending weekend services during COVID gave them a lot more free time on the weekends to do other things they would rather be doing. So they've become lackadaisical in their commitments, losing their desire to meet with their fellow Christians, and ultimately chasing other endeavors they find more fulfilling. But quite frankly, I remain surprised at my surprise, (laughs) because the Bible is clear that this is exactly what it will be like in the last days. Wait a minute, Pastor Jeff, are you saying that we're in the last days? I'll get to that. But as we begin this series with this first message, I wanna answer three questions. One, what is happening in our world today? Two, how are we supposed to respond? And three, when will the end come, okay? What is happening in the world today? How are we as Christ followers supposed to respond? And when will the end come? So first, what's happening in our world? the same thing that's been happening in the world since time began really. There is disease. What's interesting is that COVID-19 is fatal for less than one half of one percentage point of people who find themselves under its influence. So that means that 99.5% of us will be just fine. And I realize that that's no less painful for those who have lost someone to COVID-19. That 0.5% matters. There's pain, there's suffering. But COVID pales in comparison to some of the diseases of the past. This has happened in every century on record. In 1918, we had the Spanish flu. 50 million people worldwide died, 50 million. 2% of the world's population, four times worse than COVID-19. And it came in three waves. Herd immunity defeated it in just over a year, but not before there were a lot of deaths. The swine flu in 2009, 300,000 deaths. And the Mayo Clinic says, people 65 and older were more susceptible. Or if you had a body mass index of over 40, or if you have previous medical conditions like asthma or diabetes, or if you have heart or lung disease. Does any of that sound familiar? Influenza, what we call as the common flu. 710,000 people died in 2017 alone, 70,000 of whom were in the United States. And the CDC says the flu vaccination, which took years and years to develop, is only around, still to this day, 40% effective. Flu deaths in 2019 to 2021 are unknown, unaccounted for, or unconvincing. Somewhere, they say, between 12 and 60,000. That's quite a disparity. Can we just stop there just for one moment? I wanna walk over the board just for a second because I'm reminded of a conversation that took place between a Christian and an atheist. And after hours of debate that was getting nowhere, finally the Christian walked over to the atheist and he drew a circle or a square on the board. And he said to the scientist, how much of the known universe, how much of the known universe do we really comprehend? And the scientist drew this little triangle in the square and said about 2%, 2%. And then the Christian said, well, isn't it possible then that God can be located somewhere outside of the 2%? And his point was science is a very good thing, but it is strictly limited to about two ounces of the universe because science operates out of theory and hypothesis. In other words, trial and error and guesswork over a long period of time. And because there's so many variables and our knowledge is significantly limited, science is a very good thing. It teaches us about the world God has made, but it can often be subjective in its interpretation, mind-boggling and often unclear. There are unexplainable terrestrial events. There are unexplainable celestial events. There are unexplainable deaths. There are unexplainable lives. And as one man has said, there's so much in the human experience that is not in the purview of science. So that the bottom line is that God is the giver of all life, period. Psalm 139 says that all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. When my mom died, this became a present reality for me because we had no explanation. And as advanced we are in science and as capable as the physicians are and were, no one could explain to me my to me why my mother passed away. No issue of heart problems, no known physical ailments. And finally, they told me that she passed away at the age of 61 of cardiac myopathy. And I looked it up and read everything I could. And finally, I determined that a cardiac myopathy is what they tell us our friends and relatives die of when they really don't know. Because it's not a heart attack. It's simply as if the heart stops beating, but nobody knows why. It's almost like every heart has a number of beats. And when that number has come to completion, It's the end of our lives. Every generation, every century, not only faces disease, but we also face war. Right now, as we speak, Russian troops gather around the Ukrainian border. Why? Because man's unquenchable thirst for power and land and money is responsible for 99.9% of the world's pain and suffering. In our world today, there are territorial wars, civil wars, interstate conflicts, religious wars, political wars, tribal wars transnational terrorism, sectarianism, and constant political infighting. And at the turn of the last century, we were told that with the advancement of science and education, we would be able to finally create a social utopia for which man has been searching. And yet there've been more war and conflicts and deaths in the past century than in all the other centuries combined. Science and education are good things, but they did not stop the conflicts. They just gave us more advanced means to propagate our destruction. And the Bible tells us that man seems intent on destroying himself and others, and until he turns his heart toward the heavens, pain and suffering will continue. Jeremiah 17 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. And so each generation tends to oppress the poor and subjugate and exploit the less fortunate. And as you look around our world, at impoverished nation after impoverished nation, you realize that it is not the result of a lack of resources. God has provided more than enough for humanity, but it's an abuse of those resources given by God by those who thirst for more power and more control. Corruption is the enemy, not God. So the question is, as we talk about some of these things, why are we surprised then at what's happening in our world? Did the prophets not tell us that this is how it would be? So I wanna read now our text. Revelation 13, I'm gonna be reading a lot of scripture in this passage or in this message. So please be patient and listen to every word that the Bible speaks to us. In Revelation 13, here's what we read, verse one through 10. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had 10 horns and seven heads with 10 crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast and they also worshiped the beast and asked who is like the beast, who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity, they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword, they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. So given all that's happening in our world, what does Revelation 13 tell us about what we are to expect, how we are to respond, and when the end will come. First, quickly, what are we to expect? Now, diving into Revelation 13 immediately and trying to understand everything without a 40,000 foot view and a general overview of Revelation is impossible. So when we come to the book of Revelation, and I think this is gonna help a lot of you who get confused or a a little bit intimidated by it, and although no one really understands everything about apocalyptic literature, especially the book of Revelation, there are some things that are not that difficult to understand. The book of Revelation represents world history. That's why you see these numbers again and again, 1260 days, 42 months, time, times, and half a time. All of those symbols represent the same time period, which is three and a half years. Think about it, 1260 days, 42 months, a year, two years, half a year, three and a half years. So in the book of Revelation, all of human history is reduced to a seven-year period, three and a half years before the first coming of Christ, three and a half years before the second coming of Christ. Now, these are symbolic, not literal three and a half years. The reason is because we're dealing with apocalyptic literature. And in apocalyptic literature, we're dealing with the Greek word semaino, which means to signify types. So when you see a number, It's not literal, it symbolizes something else. So all of human history is symbolized in seven years, three and a half years before the first coming, and then three and a half years after the first coming until the parousia or the second coming of Christ. Now we'll talk about this gap period just in a moment. So as we look at the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is said to have been cyclical. Cyclical means that there are seven visions in the book of Revelation. And they are seven acts of a play. And every act of the play represents the types of events that will occur between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And that's why the numbers all through the book of Revelation are 1260 days, 42 months, time, times, and half a time. These are the types of events that will occur from the time Jesus established his kingdom on the cross till the times he returns and his kingdom becomes a present little reality on the earth, you see? So it's not really that difficult as we read the book of Revelation. Now, some of the symbols are, but as we read the book of Revelation, we again refer to it as a cyclical approach of apocalyptic literature. Seven, seven, one play, seven acts of the play, each act represents the types of things that will happen during the, the days between Christ's first coming and second coming. And that's why every vision will be illustrated and then the stage will be wiped clean and then another vision will come and it will repeat the types of things that will happen between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. Now, that's why when John sees the vision, The third act of the play is present. We've been through two previous acts. So whatever John sees, whatever the beast of the sea represents, it's talking once again about the types of events that will occur from the time Jesus first appeared till the time of his parousia or second coming. Now, when are the last days? Well, the last days are here and now, but they've been here and now since the day Jesus established his kingdom until the time he returns. These are the last days. Pastor Jeff, how do you get that? Acts chapter two, in verse 16 through 18, we are referring to the day of Pentecost. And the disciples were able to speak in languages they had not previously heard. And people began to ask, what's going on here? Is this some type of miracle? Is this some kind of 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 experience that cannot be explained. And the answer is given clearly in Acts chapter 2, verse 16. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So even the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, understood that we are now living in the last days, that the last days began with the establishment of Christ's kingdom on the day of Pentecost, and then the last days will culminate in the parousia, the second coming when Jesus returns. So now, Revelation gives us those seven acts of a play. So you have seven seals, seven trumpets, then the beast of the sea, the beast of the earth, The bowls of wrath, the scarlet woman and the scarlet beast, Babylon the great, and then the thousand years and the final victory. And each vision ends with the second coming. That's why you have a description of heaven seven different times. Each act of the play tells you the types of events that will occur, and then the end comes, the second coming. And yet we are told, as we look at these different visions that describe to us the type of events that will occur between the time Jesus establishes his kingdom and the time of the parousia, we are given general ideas. In other words, we're told by these visions that the gospel will be preached, wars will come, death and disease will come, there'll be famines and natural disasters, terrestrial and celestial events, and the persecution of genuine Christ followers will also come. So we should expect those type of events to occur from the time Jesus first established his kingdom until the time He returns. And that is most definitely the empirical fact of this point and time in history. And the reason God allows these things to occur. We're told in Revelation 9:20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. In other words, people continue to live as if the kingdom of heaven does not exist. Their same passions, their same pursuits, their lack of purity, even though all these things were happening to them to show them the futility of the world in which we live, they still put their faith and trust in what is seen rather than what is unseen.
0: You've been listening to Today with Jeff finds. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff.
1: Now we come to the third act of the play. This is where the beast of the sea enters in. We're told it has seven heads, and we're told that the beast resembles three creatures. In verse 2, the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. When John read this, he would have known that these animals are all native to Palestine. You can listen to more messages
0: like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you listen to podcasts.